Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, I'm joined by the CMO of Content Stack, Susan Beerman. And this is a great conversation for anyone who's interested in bridging sales and marketing. And the reason this is so applicable is Susan started her career in sales for over six years, actually selling and bringing solutions to buyers. And she talks about how that gives her empathy to understand as a CMO, what you need to do to ultimately break through. Now, Susan's done this at many amazing brands in her career. She's been with Microsoft, Netscape. That's early in her career, not to mention more recently companies like Jigsaw, which was acquired by Salesforce. And today, as I said, she is CMO of Content Stack. This is her third time as CMO, and she talks a lot about her mindset on why BDRs are so tied to marketing and the control it allows her in terms of understanding feedback from the customer and ensuring that what she hands over to sales is truly qualified. Tune in right now for our great conversation on sales and marketing alignment. Susan, I am very pumped to have you here, not just because you're in the content space like I am when I'm not doing podcasts, but your career is so interesting in terms of how long you've been committed to technology and the different areas of technology. So bringing it back to this content piece, what was it about this space that pulled you in for your third time as a CMO? Thank you so much for having me, Randy. It's a pleasure to, to be on your podcast today. Yeah, I, it was interesting when I was looking for my latest opportunity, um, which was not that long ago. I'd been at Content Stack for six months now. I really kept finding myself drawn into anything to do with digital experiences and digital transformation, which I know sounds very, very broad. Um, but Content Stack was a company that I was familiar with. I was a former customer. As one thing led to another, um, there's several people who used to work at me two CMO roles ago who were now at Content Stack. And so they reached out and said, hey, we're looking for our new CMO and we think he would be a really good fit. And so one thing led to another and that was the CEO. We hit it off and so here I am. There you go. Now I'm curious on that question because the people who you had worked with prior, were they part of this the SLT, the senior leadership team, or were they part of the marketing org and were excited to work with you in that leadership role again? Yeah, you know, it's it's, it's interesting. They were they both were um, in my organization, so reporting into my into me, not even directly to me. So it's I would say, you know, typically I'm brought in by senior leaders that I've worked with in, in previous roles or or an executive recruiter. So this is unique in terms of you know, somebody saying, hey, we, we think you're great and we'd love you to be our boss again. So um, that's a first for me. And it was a, a really, really cool way to get introduced to the company and and to find this, this great role, which is, you know, six months in, it's been a fantastic journey. I'm still learning a lot. Of course, I think we always are learning a lot. And uh, but it's just super, super fun. 
So let's continue on that track of learning. And, and I'm curious some of the things that have prepped you to take the steps that you were able to take as a CMO. And you've been with some amazing companies, Ellie Mac in the mortgage space, uh, you know, prior to that, you know, some brands like Jigsaw before you were a CMO, but, you know, getting acquired by Salesforce must have been quite an adventure. When you look back, what is the moment where you said, I'm ready to make this jump? I think it was when I was at Ellie Mae, which is now um, Ice Mortgage Technologies, and there were acquisition and, and rebranding, but um, and that was a company that focused on selling uh, software to mortgage lenders. And I joined that company, and I was there for seven years. It was a great journey. I joined them right after they had gone public, but um, they're a fairly small, hundred million dollar company, and um, helped grow them to half a billion. So it was a really great ride and a and a rocket ship and i you know i i was doing everything to do with marketing you know from branding to demand gen um and, and everything else in, involved and i really felt like hey i was doing the job and i deserved the title so um you know of course uh that that did happen and i enjoyed yes a really really good career there and in terms of contributing to the growth of the company um and really i think it's somewhat of a niche in terms of the market that we serve, but we were definitely by far the leader in it. And, um, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case when I started. So being able to um, build that brand, build the the revenue engine, of course, with the whole team, it's certainly not something I did single-handedly. And I think the other, the other thing that was really <clears throat> cool there is I built the team um, from scratch. It was a very understaffed marketing team when I, um, when I joined the company, and not that I'm a big system builder, but I had a pretty clear vision going in as to what the organization ultimately should look like. And then over the course of several years, as budgets you know grew and, and resources, um, we can add more resources to the team. It was I had a really solid roadmap that we just you know prioritized what was most important at the time and then filled filled the different rungs on the org chart and basically had no attrition and just you know very high highly satisfactory um, experiences and uh, teamwork, et cetera. So it was, a, it was a bit of a dream come true. So I'd love to dig into something you, you mentioned there in, in walking through your experiences and this mindset of being patient to grow a team, but also understanding what you're joining. Uh, you know, in, in contrast, as you said, joining a company that was publicly traded over $100 million in revenue, versus content stack today. I mean, we're not going to talk about where you are from a revenue perspective, but this is more of a series C company. Probably there's a mindset to go public one day there, but how is that different in terms of expectations, both in terms of, is this a public company? And as well, what is my goal in terms of revenue growth versus perhaps profitability? Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite different, and you know it's been it's been a long time since I've worked for this earliest stage of a company, and you know we're fairly far along. I mean, we have hundreds of customers, and we are doing really well and growing really rapidly, and we've we've raised a, a, a great amount of money. Um, and in fact, we got our, our Series C rounding last November, which was good timing because um, you know as you know the markets have shifted this year, and it's a little bit tougher to get funding. And if you do, it's not necessarily at the valuation one would hope. So I think our timing was just absolutely perfect. Um, but I have to remind myself, like, you know, there's things not necessarily in place here that I was, that I certainly had in place in my last two companies, which were bigger. 
and uh, remind myself that to not to, to not be critical or impatient because it it's the stage that we're in. So I find myself saying a lot. That's interesting. <laughs> And, you know, and realizing like, okay, well, um, so we don't have such and such in place. So um, how do we work around that? Or how do we, um, you know, work towards getting certain things in place that you, you would expect to have as you, as you scale and, and grow, et cetera. So curious if you, if you have an example of something that you came to expect perhaps in a company of larger scale, larger team. And, you know, that's not to say that you have a small you know, engine as as you put it now in terms of funding. I mean, your marketing team is is over fifty people today. But what is something that you've had to almost relearn to live without, and how have you offset that? Well, I'll give you what will be probably what will come across initially as a really bizarre example. But we don't have a PO system, so not that I love PO systems. And I mean, come on, procurement is not something that I love. But as a mark head of marketing, where you have you know, a pretty sizable program budget with a lot of moving pieces. I found when I first started, the only time I realized when someone on my team spent money was when I got an invoice to approve. And I'm like, well, wait a minute, what if I didn't want them to spend that money? And so I'm like, where was the PO system? What's the checks and balances here? So that I, <laughs> as I go, we don't have a PO system. And that's when I went, that's interesting. So what's, what's some lightweight process that we can put into place? so that I can approve things before they're spent. And, you know, we have checks and balances um, in the overall marketing budget. And so, you know, we just put a very lightweight process in place. And I, you know, I, I dubbed somebody who wasn't even doing marketing operations before I joined saying, you are now doing marketing operations. And one of the things you're going to do is help me manage this very complex budget in conjunction, of course, with finance. And so, so that, I mean, I know it sounds like a really bizarre thing because you were probably expecting something about what was missing in marketing, but it was just sort of a, something that you sort of take it for granted, you know, that you would have a PO system that any sort of purchase before it occurred would go through a formal approval process. And, and yes, we do have approval processes, but it wasn't in the form factor of which, you know, I was used to. No, I, yeah, I think that's actually a great example. And I imagine that for a lot of companies, they probably encounter a lot of mess before they realize the need that, that you've introduced there, which is, and I, I've felt that at our company, even at a, a smaller scale, to be to be very honest, which is sometimes I'm approving something to be paid as in we are actually wiring the money. But at that point, you can't refute it because we've actually used those services that the terms were net 90 or something of that sort it's very hard to go back on that. It's more about how do you adjust that going forward? And I, and I suppose with, with what you've been able to bring in, it's more of a, of a planning perspective. I, I'm curious, just doubling down on this, on this topic, because I find it very interesting. Who does that mean that everything has to run by you to be approved or are you enabling certain levels of management at a certain cost level or budget level? Yeah, I think, Yes and no. So I think, you know, prior to my coming on board, um, so each of my leaders, they know what their budget is. We have, an, we have an approved budget, you know, down to excruciating detail. And and they didn't know what their budgets were before because somebody else just sort of kept the keys, whatever, close to the best and, and they would have to come and ask and they would just, you know, say yes or no. I, I certainly don't want to be doing that. You know, there's there's better ways I want to spend my day. So I, mean, I want my team to feel empowered. It's like, here's here's your budget. 
and these are the goals you're responsible for, make the two work together. Like use that budget in a way that's going to help you achieve these goals, right? And of course, I'm here to help and 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 advise and remove and block, et cetera. Absolutely. Now, that, that's great guidance, I think, for anyone thinking to scale their team and really appreciate you sharing how, how you've introduced that. Susan, we're going to take a quick break here. We'll jump in to talk a little bit more about execution beyond just approving those budgets in terms of where that spend goes right after this break. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. As Susan walks through this idea of having something as simple and structured as a PO system and wondering why that makes a difference as a CMO, I think the biggest takeaway I had there was she is enabling her managers to manage their part of the business. And that's a really important element of not just becoming a CMO, but scaling a marketing team. You heard Susan share that her marketing team's close to 60 people today. That means she can't look at every single expense. She needs to ensure that her VP of demand or her VP of brand or the different people who are reporting to you as a leader can run their areas of business. And to do that, we need to ensure that they have their own processes as much as you will need one to oversee the budget as a whole. Susan, we got so deep into elements of being a CMO, we didn't really get to hit on where you started your career, which was not in marketing, but in sales. And, and I'm wondering, just at a high level first, how has that shaped the way you think about the relationship between marketing and sales? I have great empathy for sales because I've, I've done the job and I know how hard it is. I, yeah, I think that there's empathy that I wouldn't have had if I hadn't walked in there. I really literally walked in the shoes because I, I was a salesperson for about six, six, seven years of my career. So, um, you know, I get it. I get it's hard. I get it that, um, you know, what looks, you know, great on a glossy marketing brochure, virtual brochure, whatever, um, is a little bit different when you're in a conversation and someone's not getting it or they're very challenging and there's very tough objections. Every deal's a battle at some level. Some of them are easy, easily won, and some of them are, are very hard loss. And um, you know, so I guess it starts with empathy. I, I love that word. Uh, any day, especially in this context. So, given how hard it is, explain to people maybe why you decided to go to the side of believing that the BDR org, which you could throw under either side and, you know, someone's going to disagree and agree. Um, but you you said when you got to Content Stack that you felt BDRs belonged under marketing. So why would you want to take on that hard responsibility? Yeah, I think, 
I think my preference is to have the BDRs and marketing, although I think it can work very successfully either way. And in fact, I did some research uh, about it a couple years ago, so it could have shifted. Things have a tendency to do. And I think at the time that I did it, I think the, the preponderance of organizations, maybe 65% reported into sales. So, you know, it is arguably one way or the other. And I think there's pros and cons to it. I think um, why why I'd like it is I like, you know, being very close to the BDRs and understanding how the campaigns and the leads that we're giving them if they're of good quality and what's working and what isn't and enables us to iterate faster, you know, because we just have a, a, a direct line, not that we wouldn't if they were ported into sales, but there's just something about the mindset of having them there and having them sitting in the, you know, the, the marketing all hands meetings, et cetera. And thinking of ourselves as this extension of, you know, we're, we're building the brand, we're generating leads, and then we're of course, passing it to the BDRs and they play a very, very critical role. So it just helps me, you know, to keep my finger on the pulse a little bit closer and enable um, us in marketing to, I think, you know, fail quickly, learn quickly, um, iterate and, and get to a, a good space um, much more efficiently. So I want to dig a little deeper into what it means to line up an opportunity in your definition and and Really what I want to get to here, just to, to set the stage, is how much education do you expect a BDR to do for your buyer in, in terms of, is it about getting that meeting or is it about getting that buyer to actually understand what problem you solve? I think it's getting the meeting, but before getting the meeting to qualify it, right? So if you don't want to be giving things to salespeople that don't meet our our criteria, our ICP, right? Um, and and no, they're not going to be able to do a full, you know, deep dive on, into all the inner workings of a company, but they should have enough of a qualification so that when, I, when they do successfully set up a meeting, and of course there has to be some selling involved in doing that to understand the customer's pain and what they're what they're seeking, you know, what is the issue they're seeking to solve? Do they have a project? Do they have a defined need? And and then convincing the customer enough, knowing enough to say, yeah, I think that it would make sense for us to have another conversation and then bring in, of course, the, the salesperson at that point. So we sell to pretty large enterprises and our deals are six-figure deals. That's not going to be sold over the phone. So there's only so much that they can do and are responsible for doing, but, but we want to make sure that we're giving really great at-bats to the, the AEs. Now, you and I got to talk a little bit off-air about what Content Stack does, given the space of, of DXP, digital experience platforms. And, you know, to help everyone understand, I mean, you are very much disrupting the traditional CMS platform that might be up out there. Uh, and we don't have to name them. You know, they're out there. A lot of people know the the big ones. The The reality in, in terms of that sales cycle is, as you talk about someone's qualified or ready, does that mean that they're just open to understanding a different approach? Because most of your customers probably have a solution. So is it that they have a renewal coming up? Is it that they're frustrated with the status quo? How do you determine that criteria 
for saying that this person is ready to talk to an account executive. Yeah, I think I think they have to probably have some frustration with the status quo um, or the you know the incumbent solution um, because you're right they're they're going to have something and um, I think it's really um, they they either have, they have some pain points or some sort of forcing function you know it could be that they're merging two companies together you know they've acquired a company and they're trying to merge two brands or websites and digital experiences etc. And it's an opportunity for them to start fresh with with newer, more modern technologies that are more flexible. And that they have to, you know, in our case, they have to have a mindset towards, you know, digital being an, an incredibly important part of their strategy. So that's that's tends to be where we go fishing and where we find the most opportunities that have the most success in closing these large enterprise deals. So can you give us an example of, of how you're arming BDRs or some sort of play they have to determine whether someone fits that criteria, has that pain uh, that's worked well, uh, either specifically for content stack or in your career that you kind of use within that outreach uh, that's going on, whether that's the technology, whether that's the messaging? Yeah, it's it's a combination of both, right? I mean, we we are. I'm a big believer in using technologies for efficiencies and also just to measure things. You know, I mean, so we, you know, we use Groove, for example, so they can you know set up email sequences and automate that and, and make that much more efficient for them. So they're spending more time actually talking to customers um, versus you know writing an email from scratch, et cetera. So we give them a lot of messaging. We give them a lot of email templates. We also support them through the, you know, the chat on our website, et cetera, to help do some basic qualification before even gets to them. And, um, you know, other tools is just intent data, like who's in market that they can, you know, they actually do outbound as well. It's not just all inbound. Uh, I, I say they spend probably, you know, two thirds of their day doing outbound versus inbound. You know, it's, it's, it's definitely messaging, you know, here's the qualifications, being really, really clear and when to, when to advance something versus not, because we don't want to waste salespeople's time or, or anybody's time for that matter, um, with you know sort of those basic qualification questions, et cetera. So just to wrap this this part of our episode up, I'm I'm curious your outlook to the future. Um, you know, you were in sales, as you said, you've been on the marketing side, and the BDR role has been debated where it lives. But I've heard people more modern day even debating, is there a role for a BDR in the future? Or should we start to expect an account executive or a full sales cycle mindset of one rep who owns the relationship from beginning to end? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I didn't realize that was a trend. I, that's that, So that's the first time I've heard that. Um, you know, I, I don't know that it makes sense for enterprise sales. I have to think about that a bit more, but you know, you'll give me something to ponder, and I'll probably lose sleep over it tonight. But you know, let's face it. I mean, if in enterprise selling, you have to be a very seasoned, sophisticated seller, which means that it's a very expensive resource, right? It's worth it, but it's an expensive resource. And so, I think that you know, to do the qualification, we can do so much from a marketing perspective, but having sort of that that layer of you know kind of separating the wheat from the chaff if you will and again giving those most likely to close opportunities 
and have them vetted before they go to a, a very expensive salesperson. So I think in our world today, that I, I don't see that, that going away. I, th- I think that it could be interesting, though, when you think of product-led growth, right? Then maybe that does get eliminated. You know, if you're doing a really, really great job sending people to your website, which is, you know, a marketing motion typically, and uh, getting them, you know, a, f- a free version of the product and they're getting experience with it and they're getting all their support digitally without humans other than the people who are producing that content, if you will. And then, you know, maybe they put down their credit card and they buy it. You know, maybe you can eliminate the salesperson altogether and um, or minimize it. So in that case, I could see where that could, could actually work. Um, I think, you know, what's going to be interesting for us and is happening fast and furious, as you know, is is AI. And, and we've been talking about AI for how long, you know, Randy? For years and years and years and years. But like this year, like it's really here. And it's here in a big way, and it's super, super exciting, and it's super, super scary. And I, I was talking to another CMO the other day, and she says she has a virtual BDR, and so you know enough of the programming, et cetera, to do the outreach on maybe the leads that are not hot leads, but maybe you want to keep nurtured or they're not quite ready yet, and so they created a virtual BDR who's it's sort of. A, a series of automated uh, automated interactions. Um, so that's kind of an interesting angle too. So you know, I think when we are having this conversation, if, if I'm invited back in another couple of years, we'll probably be talking about some very, very different things that maybe we haven't even conceived up yet. I love how Susan's brain started thinking about the implications of where we're going in terms of the sales cycle and the responsibility of a BDR today versus perhaps what the future might look like. Now, I'm gonna give credit for that question because it came from a gentleman named Morgan Ingram, and he's a person who I really encourage you to follow on LinkedIn, has some very forward-thinking ways in which we need to look at a sales organization and what may come in the future. He said to me that as important as BDRs are, one day we are going to be in a full sales cycle responsibility. So how do we bridge that? Or how do we get to that point? Now, it doesn't mean that we may not have people performing a BDR role, but maybe they're in a role where they're supporting certain technologies in the background, technologies like a digital sales room that enables your sellers, technologies that allow us to better qualify people, like Susan said. Take that mindset and start prepping for what the future may look like today. Susan, I've I've really enjoyed hearing about your career and the buyer journey. We're gonna merge some of those together, those topics under what I call a rapid fire section. Now, my first question for you is when you think about the next leader. You know, maybe this is someone who's working on your team. Maybe it's one of the people, as you said, who brought you over into Content Stack because you worked with them before. But that person who's going to become the CMO, what's one quality they need to work on right now? Oh, um, well, it depends on that person. But uh, you know, generally speaking, I, I think the big difference is if you want to sit at the table at the C-suite, you have to think like a business person. 
not a marketer. Now you're a business person that specializes in marketing and you bring that lens to the table, but you have to first think about the business and how all the components help drive the business. So whether it's growing the top line or, you know, reducing costs so you can grow the bottom line and those, you know, you have to think in those terms and, and, and about ROI and um, investor value. That's great advice. My next question for you ties back to something you hit on today. And we talked a lot about the importance of BDRs. Now, as a CMO, I'm sure your inbox is filled every day with emails from BDRs, calls that you probably do or do not answer. How do people successfully break through when they're selling to you? Like, what is it that draws you into some sort of outreach? You know, it's hard to get my attention, and but it does happen. Um, and when it does, I always forward it to my BDRs as an example of something that got my attention. Um, but typically, it has to be some something that's pertinent to me. It has to be timely, right? There could be something that sounds like the greatest thing in the whole wide world, but if it's not something that I'm looking to solve right now, it's not going to get airtime. So part of it's just timing. Um, but it has to be something that catches my attention. Um, and it's typically something that's not a mass produced thing, but it's, it's highly customized. Um, and, um, and with some, some clever angle, I think is important too. It's a great answer. I mean, you're, you're already jumping into what my next question was going to be, which was what about personalization today? breakthrough for you and and you're hitting on the words like something that's pertinent something that's timely something that's customized so knowing your first name obviously is not going to cut through but do you expect them to get more into understanding some of your personal preferences you know by creeping you online in some sort of way or do you expect more for them to understand and tie it to your business which which part is kind of more of that hook for you I mean, I think either can work, you know, I mean, if somebody sends me something and offers me a really nice bottle of wine, it gets my attention. Now I'm not going to respond just to get a free bottle of wine. I feel, <laughs> I just, well, I won't do that, but it will get my attention um, that now every BDR out there is going to send me a message offering me a free bottle of wine, but we're going to have a great summer. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also, if it, it looks like they've done their homework on our business and, you know, maybe have an angle that so that they know that other marketers, for example, in my particular type of company are facing or whatnot, um, that works a lot better than, hey, I want to talk to you about your objectives this year and can I have 15 minutes on your calendar? Here's a link to my calendar. I mean, like that is just like lazy BDR work right there. That just That's going deep right to the, the, the delete box. That's great. Uh, and I couldn't agree more. Those go to my, they, they probably often go to my spam before I even can click delete because they're so templated. Susan, my last question for you today is more personal uh, in terms of that that split. And that is how do you balance the expectations of you as a CMO with everything you need to do for yourself, for your family, uh, just to get that space on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think balance is an interesting word, right? And I, 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 I will. I stole this from somebody. I don't even remember who it was, but it's like your life is. You know, you seek this balance, right? Balance means that everything's here. You know, my my personal life's good, my work life's good, but really, it's a seesaw, and it's just like how do you make sure that it's not at one end all the time or the other end all the time? So, 
there's times where work just has to take over because there's something urgent happening. And there's other times where, you know, you have to prioritize your personal life. With that said, I mean, I think I'd, I, I'm, I'm pretty good at it now. I, I tend to, you know, I mean, my schedule's overwhelming. I've got, I'm traveling here. I've got board meetings. I've got this, I've got that and the other thing. And I tend to just try to separate what's most important, urgent and, and strategic and make sure that I focus on that and, and not say, and just worry about the other, I'll worry about that tomorrow. And I love to unwind. I mean, you know, I love to unwind with my husband at the end of the day. I love to um, spend time on the weekends, you know, with my family and friends and, you know, we love to travel. So we, we try to make it a point to unplug at a certain hour and that's, you know, we're not always successful and take vacation, you know, like some people, like they feel like it's a badge of honor to work harder than everybody else and work more hours. I think it's, you know, it's more of a badge of honor to have a happy life and that does require some level of balance. That's a great advice. And, and this episode was really filled with it. I can't thank you enough for being so open and sharing and, you know, really giving people some solid frameworks in terms of how to lead as a CMO and how to take stances on things like the BDR talk that we had today. There was so much great uh, takeaways from this episode. If you've tuned into this one as your first on the marketer's journey, check out all the other amazing CMOs who have joined us here. Keep on your path to how you're becoming a CMO. And one day, hopefully you'll be on this episode to share. Until next time, big thanks to Susan Bierman and thank you to all of you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts. 